This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Thank you, Alan, and it's great to be with you tonight on the ever-expanding ADH-TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. If you're watching on a computer and haven't downloaded our app yet, go to the App Store, Google Play Store or Apple TV and search for ADH-TV. You'll find all our content there, live and on demand, and it's free. Now, last night, I joked that Joe Biden might pull his son Hunter out of semi-retirement and send him over to Beijing to sweeten the sour pork that Xi Jinping has been eating lately. After all, Hunter's involvement in China has, according to the revelations in Miranda Devine's brilliant book Laptop from Hell and other news reports, has been a very successful one, at least for the Biden family. It shouldn't be too much to ask Joe, aka the big guy, to dispatch Hunter from wherever he's hiding out and help the United States at this time of potential trans-Pacific nuclear war. But nobody even knows where Hunter is, and it would be rude to ask Joe, since he doesn't even remember where he is sometimes. Of course, Hunter should also be wanted by various law enforcement agencies seeking to investigate his shadowy business deals, drug habits and violent behaviour. But the FBI doesn't seem to know where he is either but they can easily find Donald Trump, whose house they sensationally and publicly raided today. Regardless of your opinion of Trump, or Hunter for that matter, this is actually a very sad day for the United States. The politicisation of its government, bureaucracies, agencies and law enforcement bodies now seems almost complete. Reversing that process is a monumental task. We in Australia are partway down that same road. We haven't quite lost the laid-back larrikin demeanour for which we were once famous, but we will if we don't defend it. Thankfully, there are some bold Australians who are up for the fight, and they will always be welcome here on ADH-TV. Two of them are Senator Alex Antich and writer Alexandra Marshall, who I'll be speaking with soon about some of the big issues of the day. Now, let's get on with the show. Do you ever get the feeling that Labor's climate change policy is like a backroom deal within a deal? Or perhaps Chris Bowen's attempts to explain it sound like they are never ending or beginning 
on an ever-spinning reel. Then you try to understand the logic of it, but it's like a tunnel that you follow to a tunnel of its own, down a hollow to a cavern where the sun has never shone. And if all that makes you feel like you're stuck in a door that keeps revolving in a half-forgotten dream, well, congratulations. You're making as much sense of Australia's 2022 energy slash climate policy as folk singer Noel Harrison did about a whimsical summer love affair in 1969. Like a snowball down a mountain or a carnival balloon Like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face And the world is like an atom whirling silently in space Like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind those windmills can get in your mind all right, especially if, like Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen, you've just legislated to reduce your nation's emissions by 43% by 2030 and need to quickly fill in the details about how you plan to do it. Labor's manifesto on this topic, Powering Australia, is a bit short on those details. It certainly doesn't mention any plans to build windmills off our beaches. Neither was this mentioned during the election campaign. This is curious because a different form of offshore energy generation was mentioned during the campaign, and sensationally so. Earlier this year, Australian resource company Asset Energy applied for an extension to its PEP11 exploration licence, which authorised it to look for gas anywhere off the coast between Sydney and Newcastle. The area it was particularly interested in was over the horizon from Newcastle. This, of course, incited fury from the residents of some of the most expensive coastal real estate in the country, who objected to the application on two grounds, that the well would be unsightly, which it wouldn't because it was over the horizon, and that a leak from a gas well might spoil their beaches. Both the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese smelled votes in marginal seats on the eve of an election and swooped on them like a couple of ravenous seagulls diving on a discarded fish and chip wrapper. Albo said his position on PEP11 was clear, quote, it's a bad idea and only a Labor government will stop it. No ifs, no buts. Well, maybe one tiny little but which emerged at the press conference Bowen held last week. You know how some people thought a single gas well over the horizon would be an eyesore? Well, wait till they see 200 windmills sticking out of the water off the beach when the wind farm earmarked for Newcastle gets up. According to this map on the Green Energy website Renew Economy, the Newcastle wind farm would be so close to the beach you could almost swim out to it. It's adjacent to the entrance to Newcastle Harbour, which is often smashed by big swells generated by storms coming up the coast from the Southern Ocean. You might recall during one of these storms in 2007, the 40,000 tonne bulk carrier Pasha Bolka washed up on the beach south of the harbour entrance. Imagine the damage it would have done if it had ploughed through a forest of aquatic windmills. Now, to be fair to Bowen, he wasn't plucking this idea out of thin air. He was merely building on the groundwork laid by the previous government, which passed the Offshore Electricity Infrastructure Bill in 2021. Bowen said at the press conference that offshore wind farms are a key measure of the 82% renewable plan and that Australia is, quote, 
way behind the rest of the world in producing wind off our coastline. No shortage of it at press conferences though. He said he was inviting submissions for the first project off Gippsland, Victoria, which could provide 20% of Victoria's energy needs and create 3,000 to 8,000 jobs a year. He went on, quote, I want to bring communities with us on this important journey. There will be valid concerns. There will be issues that will need to be worked through with communities, unquote. What? Like whether the people of Gippsland wants th want these monstrous eyesores at all? Why didn't you ask these communities about their valid concerns during the election campaign two months ago, Chris? This is a perfect example of why Australians are so cynical about politics these days. This decision was made either before the election and deliberately avoided during the campaign, or it has been quickly adopted since the election because Labor needs to explain how it's going to force us into 82% renewables by 2030. Bowen went, Bowen went on, referring to the areas where windmills will be installed, quote, these are areas undergoing economic change as our energy system transforms. These are areas that are undergoing very significant job changes and economic change, and offshore wind will create a lot of jobs. What if some people in these areas liked the jobs they had already, Chris? Shouldn't you have put that option to them at the election? Robert Gottliebson, the journalist for The Australian, two weeks ago wrote that there was an untapped natural gas deposit onshore from where these wind farms are that is arguably more valuable and easier to convert into electricity. It was discovered in 2014 and contains the equivalent of 60% of all the gas extracted from the Bass Strait over the past 50 years. That's a lot of gas. Its presence has been ignored by the last two Victorian state governments and of course every federal government over the past eight years. It would easily provide the sort of clean, reliable and cheap energy that once powered Australia's thriving economy and manufacturing industries. But we are being repeatedly told that we need to transition to renewables instead, and we need to do it fast. The reason for this has never been fully explained. Politicians simply assume we agree with them that if we continue to use coal and gas, life on Earth will somehow cease to exist. Like many people, I'm a little sceptical about this. But nevertheless, the people of Gippsland are now being told they will undergo, to quote Bowen, significant job changes. By this, does he mean some of them will lose their jobs? And as for the companies that tender for these wind farm licences, is the government going to offer them subsidies? In his book on charlatans, Bowen says, quote, climate deniers have convinced some people that tackling climate change will cost them their jobs and livelihoods, unquote. Well, perhaps he'd like to publish a new edition of the book explaining why the true charlatans are not the people like him who want to force us into expensive, subsidised, unreliable, renewable energy while ignoring the cheaper, more reliable coal, gas and nuclear that we already have in abundant supply.
Well, you could slice an easy chip shot off the fairway into a swampy lake filled with crocodiles and still not look as inept as Golf Australia did this week. To earn its position in tonight's Woke Watch segment, Golf Australia has redefined one of the least challenging aspects of playing the ancient game of golf. That challenge is to ask oneself, what gender am I? If you conclude you are male, you place your T adjacent to the marker called men. All other genders, which is to say women, place their T's adjacent to the ladies marker a few metres in the direction of the green. But now Golf Australia has replaced this with what it calls a gender-neutral colour-based system. What? The T's will be colour-coded, no doubt, in the vision of the alphabet people's beloved rainbow flag. Sim Ong, a member of the Albert Park Golf Club in Melbourne, said the move would encourage more women to play the game and would be, quote, great for future generations and current generations, unquote. But Lachlan Clark, an outspoken member of the 13th Beach Golf Club in Victoria, told the Herald Sun he was outraged. He cancelled his club membership in protest. He said, quote, If you start doing stuff like this, imagine explaining to young kids that there's no such thing as men and women. I think it's ridiculous. He's got a point. Clark was told that the blue on the new gender-neutral tees will be replaced by cyan, because blue is too masculine and isn't inclusive enough to women and non-binary people. Does that mean the sky is transphobic, Golf Australia? In response to the change, the activists say scrapping the ladies' tea will increase female participation in golf. They say it will encourage non-binary people to pursue the sport. But we're not quite sure where they got the evidence for these assertions. After all, there was zero consultation with the golfing community. Most women are offended by the idea that, that the two human genders share the same physical attributes. Some might also be bewildered by the idea that they are paradoxically also oppressed. Look at the numbers. Men are far more likely to be a victim of violent assault. Men are far more likely to die in the workplace. In the United States, men are more likely to be raped when accounting for the rape incidents in prison. Men are more likely to die in wars. And when it comes to the gender pay gap and workplace inclusion, notice how the battle for equality doesn't incorporate such occupations as bricklayers, sewer cleaners, underground coal miners and drill riggers on offshore oil rigs. This is because woke elites only care about superficial symbols and access to glamorous jobs like running multinational corporations and holding up stop-go signs on unionised roadworking projects. Golf Australia should judge players by the gender of their birth, not the colour of their tea marker. Now, the name Klaus Schwab never appeared on our ballot papers during the federal election in May, nor did the party he seems to represent, the World Economic Forum. Perhaps they should have. It would have given many, many of us the pleasure of putting them last on the ballot behind the Animal Justice Party and the newly combined Science, Pirate, Secular and Climate Emergency Parties. Schwab and the WEF do exercise some influence in our politics, but how much of it we simply don't know. In a minute, I'll ask the no-nonsense South Australian Senator Alex Antich why he tried to shed some light on this. 
But first, a bit of background. The WEF was founded by Klaus Schwab as an international organisation for public-private cooperation in 1971. He's now the executive chairman. The WEF's annual conference for 2000 invited private and political delegates in Davos, Switzerland, provides a, quote, unique collaborative environment in which to reconnect, share insights, gain fresh perspectives, and build problem-solving communities and initiatives, unquote. Well, I'm hearing alarm bells already. This year's meeting in May was, quote, held against a backdrop of deepening global frictions and fractures and was the starting point for a new era of global responsibility and cooperation, unquote. Responsibility to who, you might ask? The goal of that cooperation is to implement what the WEF calls the Great Reset, which sounds like what Stalin once did to Ukraine and Vladimir Putin is doing again. But never fear, the Great Reset will make the world a better place by implementing three strategies. One, it will advise governments how to tax and regulate their economies so they're fairer for everyone. Two, it will ensure, note the word ensure, investments will advance the shared goals of equality and sustainability. And three, it will harness the innovations of the fourth industrial revolution, which as far as I can see is a euphemistic way of saying they will turn human, humans into robotic cogs in their artificially intelligent global machine. One of the most famous images to come out of the WEF is a poster featuring a smiling millennial with the caption, you'll earn nothing and you'll be happy. The WEF website is littered with references to its participants being the people who quote, determine the future state of global relations the direction of national economies, the priorities of societies, the nature of business models, and the management of global commons, unquote. And they are the visionary and expert leaders, quote, building a new social contract that honours the dignity of every human being, unquote. Let's get Senator Alex Antich in to talk about this. Senator, welcome to the show. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. I, I feel a little bit like I'm in some sort of virtual job interview sitting like this, but let's, let's, <laughs> let's go with it nonetheless. Well, it's not an interview for the WEF, I can assure you that. No. Now, look, you've looked into the World Economic Forum. Can you tell me, after all those quotes I've just read out about, about the sort of people who attend the WEF's annual meetings, is this the most earnest bunch of self-important busybodies you've ever encountered? <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but it's certainly um, seemingly a group that use a different set of uh, language or a different lexicon than you and I would, I think. I, 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 I mean, just listening to you, the intro there and reminding myself of some of those catchphrases, um, you know, and, and what it really means, you know, because, of course, you can always tell this sort of language by what it doesn't say. And really, a lot of that, I think, is drawing back into this concept of stakeholder capitalism, which is this kind of basically reinvented way of talking about communism for the, for the 21st century. Um, and that's how the language finds itself. So um, having all of these different people from all of these different sectors, government, business, you know, private enterprise, whatever it might be, all converging on Davos doesn't sound like a bad idea in theory, but when you actually look at some of these policy positions, you, you know, you really have to start to wonder. Um, Agenda 2030, the Sustainable 
um, goals pathway that they're looking at. All of this stuff just really doesn't sound right to me or you. And I, I think the language coming out of the WF is getting bolder and bolder. It's almost like, um, you know, with language like the Great Reset, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Uh, this concept of eating bugs, you know, like, I mean, this is stuff that's genuinely coming out of the WEF. So I'm really uncomfortable with that. And uh, and that was sort of the reason behind uh, trying to find out more. Well, there's, there's a lot of patronising aspects to the language too. I mean, that phrase, the dignity of every human being, I mean, that's a given, really. I mean, what I want to know is who appointed these people and how do we know that they're not just forming cabals of self-interested, power-mad technocrats and oligarchs. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it was 1971. I think it was the, uh, the the starting date, and it seems to have been bubbling around for a long time. But from the outside, it looks like this, this sort of the fin has broken the surface a little bit with the WEF in the last few years. I mean, it, you know, it's something that I've always been aware of, but not something that I've paid great attention to. And I think the COVID period really started to, to highlight this because, of course, COVID became an opportunity for everyone to talk about what's next. And the WEF have said, well, this is the great reset, an opportunity for the, the world economy to do things a different way. Now, you know, in one sense, that might not be a, a bad thing, but, but you know, what the, the language that we're getting out of here is, is troublesome. And the fact that it is unelected, you know, I asked the question about who elected these people. Well, nobody, in the same way that nobody elected, you know, a, a bunch of NGOs. And, 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 you know, nothing's wrong with that on the surface. Um, but I think people want to know more. They want to know who's involved, what the agenda really is, uh, and uh, and what sort of effect it's having on uh, on parliaments like ours and others all across the world. Well, it, it's interesting you, you mentioned parliaments because I think the WEF is oblivious to one of the fundamentals of parliamentary democracy, and that is that our elected representatives serve us. They're not members of a powerful elite. They're elected to represent us in our parliament not hobnob with other elitists and technocrats in Switzerland. Alex, is this an old-fashioned and naive perspective? Is it, is it actually inevitable in this global era that governments will join together in a spirit of cooperation? I hope it's not old-fashioned to think that people are elected for the people. You know, politicians are elected for the people. But, look, I mean, I, I probably do get accused of being too much of a knuckle-dragger sometimes on some of these things, but I believe the institutions have served us really well. And um, the point you make about politicians being there to serve their constituencies, well, that should always be the case. Um, to a certain extent, I think the global economy does require a bit of extra thinking. Things are not the same as they were in 1950. That's that's fine. We, we all understand that. But the fundamentals have got to stay the same. We've got to know what the agenda is. And from where I sit, the agenda always has to be Australia first. And, you know, when you look at things from a globalist perspective, I think you could safely say that's not always the case. You know, people are looking at different different sets of policies for a globalist agenda. Um, whereas from where I sit, uh, you know, I just want to know what's good for this country. Okay, now let's talk about your attempt to shed some light on this. There are three members of the current Australian Parliament who have been named as World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders. They are Sarah Hanson-Young of the Greens, Claire O'Neill of Labor and Andrew Bragg of the Liberals. And in the previous government, Greg Hunt, who was for many years a senior Liberal minister, spent a year working at the WEF in 2000. Now, I must emphasise there is absolutely no suggestion that the involvement of these politicians with the WEF is contrary to their responsibilities to the Australian Parliament. For all we know, their involvement in the WEF is actually a positive thing. But the point is we don't know what their relationship with the WEF is. 
Alex, how did you try to shed some light on this and why did you do it? Yeah, look, Fred, I think you make a good point there. And we do have to say that. I mean, I don't think there's any suggestion of of anything untoward there. In the same way, it wouldn't be if you were a member of the Red Cross or any other NGO as well. But um, the point from where I'm sitting is that people, the Australian people, get a snapshot of their politicians on almost every other front. So when you uh, become a member of parliament, be it the House of Representatives or the Senate, uh, you're required to disclose pretty much everything about your life. You're required to disclose uh, you know, real property holdings, whether you're in any partnerships, whether you own any uh, interests in shareholdings in companies, all, all sorts of things, all the way down through to gifts of you know a certain dollar amount. And it strikes me, though, that, that so much potential influence, potential influence is there from other bodies, not just the WEF. It's, it's you know, potentially organisations, uh, you know, like the Gates Foundation or the Red Cross even, whatever it may be. Um, so my, my proposal was that we put um, another category of criteria onto that register of interest. Then we have the committee process look at that, um, which is a perfectly appropriate way of doing it, just simply to say, look, in the same way that it's no issue if you've got a mortgage with the Commonwealth Bank, we should also know if you've ever held an office with an NGO, whatever the NGO is. Uh, now, unfortunately, um, the, uh, the Senate didn't see it that way and Labor and the Greens voted against it uh, and it ultimately went down. So uh, that's pretty disappointing, I have to say. I mean, we, we're talking about two parties that, that spend vast majorities of their day talking about the importance of transparency in the parliament. We weren't even looking for that. We were looking for it to be referred to a committee process. So it's pretty pretty extraordinary that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't wave through. But uh, you know, nothing nothing surprises us in the Canberra bubble. It is not the real world, Fred. I can assure you of that. Alex, can you, just, can you just clarify that? You weren't actually asking them were they what the, the relationship with, with the WEF was. You just wanted to put it forward to a, the, the committee phase. Is that right? Yeah. So, so the motion effectively looked at um, a referral to, to a committee um, to see whether or not uh, we should be adding a different category to the register of interests. And, and what that did was ask the question, should we be looking at adding a category for involvements with NGOs, whether you held any offices with an NGO or political lobbying organisation, I mean, it was quite broad. Uh, whether you ever had an award from one, whether you uh, had ever been employed by one. So really just looking at what are, what are the political NGO, uh, you know, global organisations that our parliamentarians in Canberra are involved with, um, making no criticism of that, just simply looking at the facts. We just want to know who you're talking to. As I said, in the same way that it may not matter if you hold shares in a particular company. That doesn't matter. You're entitled to do that. But Australians deserve the right of transparency. This completely contradicts what Anthony Albanese was claiming about integrity during the uh, election campaign. And it comes back to the insularity of Canberra. As you say, Alex, the place is not a bubble. It's, it's, a, it's a concrete bunker. As someone who's been in Parliament for three years, is it possible to lose touch with, with reality when you spend long hours up on, up on the uh, Parliament House? Look, I, th I think it, it, it's a very, very strange building. You'd know it well, of course. Um, and, and, of course, I, what I find is that you have to almost tell yourself to, to remember that it is not the real world when you walk in there. And, and, and it's because, you know, people, human beings are human beings. You know, I think when you get into there, you're surrounded by whatever the message of the day is, as I say to people quite routinely, the media section, as you know, is on the second floor. And it, it's almost like if you can imagine it virtually in your brain, it sort of seeps down through the corridors, whatever the media issue of the day is. Um, and quite often those are things driven by left-wing outlets like The Guardian or The ABC, The Voice, 
uh, as one. That's the issue of the day last week and the week before. Uh, things like, uh, you know, the, the, the ICAC position, which none of which people in the real world are talking about. People in the real world are talking about interest rates. They're talking about mortgages. They're talking about high petrol prices. And yet, for some reason, that building just seems to get stuck on the detail of, you know, things which are important to the ABC, you know, m- number one, things which are important to The Guardian, number two. So I do think it is difficult. People, people are heavily influenced, I think, by, by whatever the narrative is. And I think we need politicians to break free of that and start, you know, tell, telling, us, telling us what's really going on out there in the community. Many do that, I should say. I shouldn't just put a broad brush over that. But, you know, unfortunately, the, the building is captured by the media cycle. Senator, very quickly before you go, I know you don't live in New South Wales, but this is something that, ha- that is happening right across the Liberal Party. Matt Keane has been elected unopposed to deputy leader of, of the New South Wales state government. Ordinary punters can only imagine the backroom deals that went down to achieve this result. Senator, is this what former Prime Minister John Howard meant when he described the Liberal Party as a broad church? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know the details of the of the of the the deal there, except to say that, you know, obviously political parties do have their machinations. Uh, and look, I mean, the party is a broad church, and it should be a broad church. But we've got to be careful. I think when uh, we get a, a singular voice in a political division, uh, we don't want the party leaning too far to the left or too far to the right. Uh, and I think we do see a variance of of that, you know, from division to division. But ultimately. Um, we need all those voices. And, uh, you know, I think this party is at its absolute best when it speaks for Menzies' forgotten people, which was Morrison's quiet Australians. Um, that's, people have to remember that. The Liberal Party was never the party of big business, despite what the Greens and Labor want to say. It was never the party of organised uh, unionism. Uh, it was always the party for mum and dad in the middle. And we are at our absolute best when we speak to those people and we have to keep doing that. Here, here, and thanks for you for flying the flag for Menzies within the within the Liberal Party. Sometimes I think even <laughs> Menzies himself wouldn't feel at home in the party these days. Anyway, <laughs> Senator Antich, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. Great to be here. That's South Australian Senator Alex Antich, one of the few telling it like it is in Canberra these days. Now, soon I'm going to speak with Alexandra Marshall of The Spectator Australia about a sensational story she's written that alleges some very cunning manipulation of the politics behind nuclear energy in Europe. But first, let me explain some of the background. About 20 years ago in Germany, under under Chancellor Angela Merkel, it was announced that the country would phase out nuclear energy. In 2017, the, the government announced the completion was imminent and the last of the plants would be shut down within five years. The operators of these plants were not thrilled with this political disruption to their perfectly functional industry, and one of them sued the government, seeking damages which dragged through the courts for a few years. Then the parliament changed its mind and reversed the decision in 2022, breathing temporary life back into what remained of the nuclear industry. Similar inconsistencies were happening all over Europe, especially in Italy, which foolishly shut down all its nuclear energy. Does this sound familiar? At the same time, various Australian governments were also meddling in the energy industry. What is it about politicians and energy these days? Do they see these massive industrial citadels generating the very lifeblood of a modern economy and somehow think they represent, represent the source of immortal power? 
Did I say immortal? That's the interesting word Alvin Weinberg used to describe nuclear energy, the industry for which many people consider him to be the father and figurehead. We'll get back to Weinberg later. But from all this equivocating over nuclear, which was as bad elsewhere in Europe as it was in Germany, some interesting business opportunities arose involving the United Nations, green rent seekers, and various other nefarious types. Let's ask Alexandra Marshall what happened next. Alexandra, thanks for your time. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now you say that nuclear power plants were devalued by various players in Europe in, around this time. Who was doing all this devaluing and why? Okay, so originally in Europe, nuclear power was seen as a positive thing. It was popular, it was being installed in dozens of countries, and it was providing a green grid and a reliable source of reasonably cheap energy for most of Europe, which they desperately needed because they rely otherwise on Russian oil and gas. So nuclear was great, it was good, people loved it. But then, of course, we had the Fukushima incident where a massive earthquake and tidal wave hit Japan and caused one of its cooling systems to fail, which we had the, the meltdown in Japan. Now, that event triggered those who were anxious about nuclear power in Europe to go into this hypersensitive kind of uh, fit, even though it has nothing to do with nuclear power in Europe. Now, they used this event to start spinning uh, emotional responses to nuclear. And in response, the governments of the day, particularly Germany, as you mentioned, started to uh, pass legislation to begin the shutdown of the nuclear industry. Now, this, of course, started to devalue nuclear power, because if you've got a government saying we're going to end this in 2030 and 2023, well, then, of course, no one's going to invest in nuclear energy. So the assets of nuclear power started to become less valuable and people started selling out of the industry or suing Germany, which is the case. And places like Italy went the whole way. They banned nuclear power and decommissioned their plants. Now, once that happens, you end up with these uh, plants sitting everywhere, which are an asset, in the process of closing, but not quite closed. Now, that's what happened in Europe. There was no reason for it, but it created this energy market gap. Similar, okay. similar to Australia, really. That's, that's a good point. Now, let's leave that there because in 2018, you say, <laughs> we'll come back to that in a second, but in 2018, you say the media got involved. What's the story there? Oh, well, the media love clickbait. So anything drama-based, like a, a, the, the uh, tidal wave or anything, that gets the media excited. And they thought, well, we'll run with this story because it's sort of fear-mongering about nuclear power. They were able to bring up all their old footage of Chernobyl and uh, they got involved. And of course, the politicians are weak and they started to bow to this pressure from the media. And they, they were joined up with these green groups, which started all these studies. And of course, the studies were rubbish, but the media ran them anyway. And that sort of accentuated public opinion about nuclear. And so it became popular to basically de-energise their grid. So it's a, it's a kind of a snowball effect. You've got the original cynics about uh, nuclear, then you've got the media, and then finally, I'm guessing, green politicians jumped aboard. Is that what happened? Absolutely. So once the green politicians got on board, the politics of this started to change and it became less about this a uh, false idea. I mean, don't forget, there's not going to be a tidal wave in the middle of Europe, okay? The, the, the threat from Japan, which is the most dangerous place in the world you could possibly build nuclear energy, wasn't going to be a problem for Germany. But it doesn't stop this fear-mongering. And so the politicians, they love a bit of drama, a bit of fear, and they thought, we can win elections on this. And that's how they got going. 
Okay, so there's all this disruption and politicians are cashing in on it. But also at this time, renewable energy uh, operators were rushing in to fill the gap. Is that what happened? So there was also another step before that. So when the decommissioning started, these companies popped up and realized that you can actually make tens of millions of dollars decommissioning power plants because you're not supposed to shut down nuclear power early. It's designed to live for 60 to 100 years and beyond that. So if you try and shut them down early, it's extremely uh, expensive. And so these companies were joyous that they could run around closing dozens of plants for a fortune's worth of value. So they encouraged it. And then this market gap erupted where there wasn't enough energy. And so people started petitioning and lobbying politicians for these huge government contracts to build solar and wind. And so the, uh, the countries that shut down their nuclear power plants are now the countries with these cumbersome projects like the North Sea project, where they're basically turning their beautiful assets into bird mincers and bug roasters. It's not a great idea. But what happened to the operators who rushed in and picked up the old nuclear power plants for a bargain? What happened to them? Well, here's the thing with politics. It takes a little while to get going. So although Italy moved pretty swiftly, which is strange for Italy, I know they're not known <laughs> for it, but they actually they moved quickly on this. But everybody else uh, was dragging their feet. And so Germany in particular, uh, they managed to buy these power plants for a, a diminished value, but they still had them. They were still active and the shutdowns were only political. They weren't actually... Uh, in the plant themselves. And so now they turned around and gone, oh, well, we really desperately need nuclear. It's become a green source of energy. It's been approved by the United Nations and by the European Union. And so they've changed their mind. Uh, and they are trying to refurbish these plants to get them going again. And so suddenly those who acquired nuclear cheap are sitting on profitable assets that are being turned around and marketed as, surprise, surprise, green energy. And the companies who own solar and wind now own nuclear energy plants as well. So they own the whole system start to finish. So nuclear enjoyed a change of image at some point. When was that and who was behind it? Who was steering this, this sort of reinvention of, of the greenness of nuclear power? So just to be clear, nuclear was green originally, then tarnished. So it was more like a, a reverting back to form. Uh, but it happened because Russia invaded Ukraine. And so all the green promises of solar and wind, when they got their little cable cut to uh, Russian oil and gas, they realised that this is actually not going to work. Our cities are going to go dark, people are going to freeze. And they turned around and went, we really actually need nuclear energy. So in order to justify this change, the European Union's like, it's okay, we've said it's green. Therefore, it doesn't matter what else fear-mongering is going on, it's green, so it's fine. And that is exactly what happened. And it happened, I think, in 2019 or something. Uh, it started, and in 2022 is where they formalised this, yep, definitely going green. How do these, how do these big organisations like the United Nations and the European Union and the World Economic Forum fit into this? Uh, well, they were part of the push for renewables. So they were happy to jump on board this. We want to try and decommission nuclear. We're not happy about the uh, risk of nuclear. So they started all this rhetoric and studies and the UN was a bit confused. They were half half. The European Union was going more with the politicians in Europe. So they were following people like Merkel and all the rest of them saying we need to get rid of nuclear because, you know, it's not going to be useful anyway. They said that solar and wind would cannibalise the system and we don't need nuclear, which is, of course, not true. Um, so they were more of a pressure point. They influenced the individual nations about it just by 
being shirty at their little conferences. They're like, if you still got nuclear and they give each other a bit of a hard time and that's how you end up with bad policy. So all the people behind this sort of clumsy uh, equivocation over what was best are now telling Europeans to be careful with the energy that they consume. It's, it's a bit hypocritical, isn't it? Well, they've actually come off worse for worse. They had a strong nuclear uh, energy solution. They had plenty of energy in Europe. But now they've got less nuclear power because they've got to catch up from what they closed down. They've got all this wasteful uh, solar and wind and they've got no Russian oil and gas or very much diminished. And so in order to say uh, that you're being environmentally friendly and to hide the problem they've created with the grid, they're saying you have to get used to having less. You have to get used to... Uh, things costing more and you're being environmental if you're poor, basically. <laughs> now, Alexandra, uh, call me cynical. This sounds awfully similar to the road the Albanese government is taking Australia down. Would that be right? Absolutely, except we don't have uh, nuclear to shut down. So instead, the Albanese government is pretty much saying you can't have nuclear because he knows the second that Australia opens nuclear power plants and just quietly, we are the safest place in the world and the cheapest place for nuclear power. We have all the uranium. It makes us geopolitically secure and we won't require a made in China power grid with solar and wind. So they can't possibly allow nuclear into this grid. So they're saying we've got this energy deficit created by closing fossil fuel plants that must be immediately filled by renewables. Otherwise, we'll go dark. Well, that's not true. You could fill it with nuclear and then close all the other renewable plants and be happy. Well, we could just stay with coal and gas, which has done us pretty well for a few decades. Now, you mentioned Alvin Weinberg in your piece and describe him as the father of nuclear energy. What would he make of the clumsy, counterproductive way Western nations have handled nuclear energy lately? Well, we know how he'd handle it because poor Alvin was facing it for his entire career. He was one of the first people in the 40s to be creating reactors. And he was also one of the people to write his first paper on the carbon uh, absorption in the atmosphere and the raising temperatures. And that was originally uh, a cause for saying, well, we should go nuclear, it won't matter then because we'll have this immortal source of energy. He compared the cost of nuclear to hydro because once you've got these power plants built, you're really only paying for staff and a small upkeep and fuel, which makes them incredibly cost-effective the longer they are implemented, which is the reverse of renewables that only last about 20 years and you've got to replace the entire grid. Very, oh, makes... <laughs> very expensive. So Alvin was frustrated by the dogged environmentalists who knew the problem, who knew how good nuclear was, and then continued to push for completely the wrong solution that had nothing to do with solving the problem at hand. Well, you and Alvin make too much sense, Alexandra. <laughs> now, quickly before you go, I just want to talk about free speech for a second. Uh, Lyle Shelton, the former head of the Australian Christian Lobby, is being sued by a couple of drag queens who he called, quote, dangerous role models after they appeared at a children's event in Brisbane in 2020. Shelton was hauled before the State Human Rights Commission and he refused to cooperate with its orders. So now he's being sued by one of the drag queens in a civil case. He says that if he loses the case, he will have effectively been cancelled and that the next cancellation could be you or I. Alexandra, is this case as pivotal as the, uh, for free speech as Shelton says it is? Well, it's certainly interesting because if you can't criticise an event of any kind, then we don't have free speech. And that is a fundamental problem in Australia. We have had successive governments, including the Conservative Liberal government, encouraging censorship, particularly online. Now, I, it's perfectly reasonable to say that you don't want uh, adult men dressed as women uh, pushing an, a fringe ideology. 
to be reading books to children. Now, if you should be able to say that without someone dragging you to court, the fact that activists can say whatever they like about the rest of society without any legal repercussions mean there is, means there is no equality in free speech in this country. It's not free. It's coerced. They're using politics in order to manipulate the social narrative, and that is unacceptable in a democracy. And, of course, it's rather ironic that the Human Rights Commission is not standing up for Lyle Shelton's human right to free speech. Oh, where's the Human Rights Commission been for the last two years? I haven't seen them. They don't care about what happens to citizens. They're more like a little activist outfit that uh, love people to be offended, but only the right sort of people so that they can have something to do for the afternoon. Alexandra, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose work can be seen every day in The Spectator Australia. Now, before I go, the conflict between Nine Entertainment columnist and author Peter Fitzsimons and the new Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampanjinpa Price escalated further overnight. It started badly enough when Fitzsimons called Price for an interview last week, a transcript of which appeared in the Sun-Herald newspaper on Sunday. The transcript is often excruciating to read. Fitzsimons is as noticeably combative as Price is polite and defensive. At least that's how it appears from the transcript. Fitzsimons says he recorded the conversation but has not released the audio. He accuses uh, Price of howling down opposing voices, then gaslights her as a representative of supposed racists. Fitzsimons' part-time job, of course, is as the head of the Republican movement, which purports to unite Australians behind an elected head of state. He's done the movement no favours today. This morning, the Australian newspaper reported he bombarded Price with a series of late-night text messages making legal threats. Can't you just feel the Republican inclusion and respect? What did Jacinta do to send the man into a rage? Well, she accused Fitzsimons of being aggressive during the interview. Fitzsimons? Aggressive? Who knew? After the bombardment of texts, Price asked him to leave her alone, saying she was intimidated, according to The Australian. In her final message to Fitzsimons, she wrote, quote, Please stop bullying me. I don't ever want to communicate with you again. Whatever happened to believing all women like your wife's best mate, Brittany Higgins, Fitzy? The arrogance is astonishing. A millionaire elitist from a swanky harborside suburb accusing an Indigenous woman from outback Northern Territory of associating with racists. Meanwhile, his wife, Lisa, Lisa Wilkinson, herself a darling of the woke media, has spent the past year demanding all women be believed when it comes to accusations of intimidation by men and encouraging other women to speak out. Well, if she wants a chat with the latest high-profile female victim of male aggression, perhaps Fitzy could flick her Jacinta's number. Well, that's it from me. Uh, thank you for your time. And remember to tell your friends to download our app from their usual device or TV app store, where all our content is available live and on demand. And even better, it's free. And I'll see you tomorrow night at 9 o'clock. Good night.